Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link from the BBC. Guinness World Records has officially crowned the new hottest pepper. <laughs> Sorry. You said hottest and I immediately thought sexy. And then you said pepper. And I was like, oh, wait, no. <laughs> <laughs> I just pictured like the Mr. Planter's peanut man, but yeah, it was a pepper and female. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And and maybe we don't even have to pick a gender because the name of this pepper is Pepper X. Ooh. And yes, the Guinness World Records has crowned it the hottest chili pepper in the world. This, in fact, dethrones the Carolina Reaper mm. chili pepper after 10 years of its mighty reign. So for comparison, let's just look at the humble habanero pepper. It typically hits about 100,000 Scoville heat units. But Pepper X... 2.69 million Whoa. units. And this is all the hard work of breeder and grower Ed Curry, because not only did he cultivate Pepper X, he's also responsible for Carolina Reaper. This ah. is undoubtedly his domain. Now, Pepper X has been in the works for about a decade, right, on the South Carolina farm that Mr. Curry owns. But he has been super tight-lipped about this project, in part to protect his intellectual property. Quote, this was a team effort. We knew we had something special, so I only let a few of my closest family and friends know what was really going on. Right. Or he's doing something seedy. No! Uh, <laughs> oh, Bradley. <laughs> Couldn't resist it. Why could. would we want you to? Yeah. Right. <laughs> the Scoville scale was invented in 1912 by a pharmacist named Wilbur Scoville, of course. And what it does is it measures how many times the capsaicin needs to be diluted in order to, I guess, be tenable, that it won't make huh. you throw up. <laughs> right. Isn't that subjective? It is, which is why it didn't really go into a great number of detail. Maybe it was, I mean, Wilbur Scoville, he sounds like a white guy. So maybe it's just a tuned to white guy mouth, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. But capsaicin is that chemical that gives humans the burning sensation of peppers. And that burning sensation can release dopamine and endorphins into the body. Mr. Curie got into this hobby after overcoming drug and alcohol addictions. Ah. He said it peppers act as a natural high, right? The dopamine and endorphins. It was kind of a nice fit. And despite Bradley's wonderful pun earlier, people do tend to believe the spice of a pepper comes from the seeds. But no, no, it's in the placenta. That tissue. Yeah, it's the pith, that <laughs> tissue that holds the seeds. Makes it far less appetizing. Than <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> well, this is the BBC reporting, so there may be some Britishism. Translation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it could be. But still, it's it's the seed skin, not the seeds itself, huh. shall we say. That right. is really where the highest concentration of spice is. And Pepper X features so many curves and ridges. It's kind of like a warty little bumpy thing on the inside. So there's more surface area mm. for that so-called placenta to grow. 
Now, Mr. Curie is only one of five people who has eaten an entire Pepper X. The experience? Well, in his own words, quote, I was feeling the heat for three and a half hours. Then the cramps came. Oh, why, man? Why? (laughs) Well, you know, the endorphins kick in after, right? The endorphins (laughs) happen because the body goes through a trauma and they're like, oh, this is no good. We got to turn on the feel goods here. Right. To continue his uh, experience report, quote, those cramps are horrible. I was laid out flat on a marble wall, question mark, Uh for approximately an hour in the rain, groaning in pain. (laughs) Now, Mr. Curie's lawyer said over 10,000 products on the market right now use the Carolina Reaper name without Mr. Curie's permission. Ah. And that is why, in an effort to protect his intellectual property, he will not release Pepper X pods and seeds. And the only way, if you have any modicum of desire to try this, you will have to wait for the subsequent hot sauces that will be made with this to come out Mm. that I'm sure he will be controlling very carefully. And Hopefully with some kind of warning label, because, you know, there was that one tortilla chip, the one chip challenge. It killed a kid. So I cannot Wait, even imagine. Did it? Didn't it? I, I mean, I, I it probably could. <laughs> I don't know. The The one thing I remember about the one chip challenge was they did it on like some local newscast. They were like, well, we got to have some content. Let's do a bit. And it was an Indian anchor and a white anchor. And they both <laughs> ate one. And the, you could like the videos on YouTube. It's hilarious. He is dying. And she's just like, I mean, it's hot, but it's OK. And he's like, no, no, no. Is this a prank? Like, you did not just eat the same thing I did. And she's like, ah, I grew up eating spicy food. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> it's the funniest oh, video. Oh, that's epic. And I did a quick Google. Yes, a 14 year old did die in a hospital wow. two hours after that one chip challenge. And that was made with Carolina Reapers. So. You know, good luck to you. I have started to wean off of the spicy things as my body has started to let me know. Yeah, we've had enough of the spicy. You can find your endorphins somewhere else. But to the rest of you, good luck, Godspeed, and have 911 on speed dial. (laughs) Yeah, I very much find I still like the spicy taste even more than I used to as my taste buds deaden and get older. But digestively, I can't handle Mm them. It's like Mm -hmm. I I need to just sort of spritz it in my mouth and then go do something else. Like I don't need to swallow it. Right, like a wine tasting. Exactly. You see spittoon next to you. <laughs> yeah, like a banaca, like those little mouth sprays. You do like, and then you go into your date or whatever. Uh, somebody <laughs> might hear that and make millions right. of dollars off of a banaca spray. And and uh, Curie will be very angry because he will not have gotten the money from it. So. None of it. <laughs> next link. Next, next link. link. Well, why don't we stay in the temperature range? This comes from the Smithsonian Magazine. What's really the average human body temperature? Oh, 98.6. 98.6 Fahrenheit has been <laughs> widely accepted as normal. No, nope, no, nope, it isn't. I, nope. I'm, nope. I'm one of the people this applies to. So you go ahead. <laughs> oh, me too. Yeah. Like I, I have a vested interest. I, I can't tell you how many times I had to remain at school when I was sick because I run a lower temperature mm-hmm. than normal. And new research adds to the growing body of evidence that humans actually run cooler. In addition, the study suggests there's no such thing as normal body temperature. Well, howdy-do. Readings greatly vary depending upon like a whole bunch of factors, from person's age to the time of day. 
And I'm going to throw in metabolism probably has an effect oh, sure. here as well, mm. but it wasn't included in the study. Mm. They'll probably get to that later. They'll call you. <laughs> they'll add it. <laughs> yeah, they'll ask me. I'm sure. Yeah. Scientists analyzed the oral temperature measurements of more than 126,000 adults wow. seen at Stanford Healthcare between 2008 and 2017. They also compiled information about each patient, such as height, weight, sex, and age, and made a note of the time of day the temperature was taken. They found average human body temperatures to be around 97.9 degrees. Hmm. But are humans actually getting cooler? Well, emotionally, probably. (laughs) Physically? Dead inside. Maybe not. Yeah. (laughs) So where did this 98.6 degrees come from? Well, it dates all the way back to 1868 when German physicist Karl Wunderlich, or Wunderlich, mm. uh, probably, took more than a million temperature measurements cool. from 25,000 people. Hmm. But a lot has changed in the world of scientific and medical research over the past 150 years. So holding up today's studies against Wunderlichs may not necessarily be apples to apples. Mm. Statistics were much less common then and no computers. So how could he have processed a million data points (laughs) and come up with the result he did? It's just impossible to imagine. (laughs) He faked his data. (laughs) Well, you know, he Uh, probably just made his wife do it like most scientists back then were conducting science. And gets the credit. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Also, where on the body Wonderlike took patients' temperatures may have also had something to do with the difference. For instance, Mm. oral temperatures tend to be lower than rectal temperatures. Mm. It's not his fault, though. 98.6 degrees was simply the number that stuck in the public's consciousness. When in reality, he reported a range of temperatures. Hmm. Catherine Lay, who co-authored the new study, said, we've used an average value to create a false dichotomy (laughs) of what's normal and what's not. For example, women tend to run hotter than men. Older Hmm. people tend to have lower temperatures than younger people. Hmm. And among all demographics, temperatures tend to be lower in the morning and higher in the afternoon. I am freezing in the morning. Hmm. So if you're curious about what your temperature might be throughout the day, the team also built an online personalized temperature range calculator. Hmm. There's a link to it in the article, but it's normaltemperature.stanford.edu. I did mine. Mine came out to about 98.1 for the average, but it does show the range all the way down to 96 degrees in the morning to 99.6 in the evening for some. And this is just based on your demographics. You're like, this is how old I am. Yeah, my male, how old I am, my height and my weight. Okay. And again, something I fought with professionals for a really long time because I do run a lower temperature. Right. So when you've got a 99, you're like, I'm genuinely sick. And they're like, nah, you're fine. (laughs) Nah, you're fine. Yeah, you just barely, Uh, no, I'm sick. mm -hmm. Yeah. And an elevated temperature, fever suggests the body might be defending off some sort of infection. It means the immune system's doing its job, too. Right. Yeah, there's definitely people who have immune disorders where they don't get fevers because their immune system is not fighting anything. It doesn't mean they're not right. sick. It means their body's just going, eh, whatever. Eh. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> what else is new? Uh-huh. <laughs> right. But since there's so much variability in body temperature, mm. a high reading in one person could be normal, right? right. So keep track of it yourself. Maybe. Take your temp on days that you're feeling well. It's not something we usually do, right? Mm -hmm. Look at it in the morning. Look at it in the evening. Figure out what your thresholds are. And then you can know if you're actually sick. 
Yeah, but all that assumes that the doctor's going to listen to you, which historically, <laughs> right. uh, that's right. Not yeah, so that's much. Right. They won't. No, no, not at all. Next link. Next, next link. link. All right. This next one is from Live Science, and it's called Orcas Are Learning Terrifying New Behaviors. Are they getting smarter? Wait, oh. oh, orcas. I'm sorry. I misheard that. I heard orchids. That oh, was no. totally <laughs> Totally Orchids are learning <laughs> terrifying new behaviors. <laughs> oh, feed me, Seymour. Okay, here we go. But spoiler alert, like any headline that poses a question, the answer is no, as it would be for orchids <laughs> too, I assume. But orcas are not gaining neurons or restructuring their brains in any way because that kind of evolutionary change simply doesn't happen that quickly. But if you consider the word smarter to mean more educated, then yeah, they kind of are. And the scientists involved here do admit that some of the new things we're seeing orcas do may not actually be new. It may just be the first time humans are seeing it. Mm. Because we started paying a lot more attention to orcas after they started ramming our boats in May of 2020. <laughs> that was definitely a new behavior. And initially, it was restricted to a particular group of whales in the Strait of Gibraltar. But it very quickly spread to other pods and is still happening today. Huh. And like the ramming of the boats, most of these new behaviors are violent. In March of 2019, researchers off the coast of southwestern Australia witnessed a group of a dozen orcas ganging up on a blue whale, which is insanely <gasps> bigger than they are. Yeah. And ultimately, they killed it after more than <gasps> an hour of tearing chunks of flesh out of its sides. Oh, Okay, okay. To, to be fair... They are known as killer whales, right? <laughs> right. Well, and that's kind of the thing. Like, I don't know. Have you ever heard that thing of like, oh, they call them killer whales, but there's no reason. They're actually very gentle. People swim with them. I think maybe like history knew something that we don't. Yeah. <laughs> and the killing of this blue whale was the first time anything like this had ever been seen. But in the months that followed, it happened two more times. And in one of those cases, the orcas also killed a baby blue whale, not by tearing its flesh, but by pushing it deep down below the surface and drowning it. So, like, they're coming up with new murder techniques on the fly on a regular basis. Bunch of bullies. Now, according to Robert Pittman, a marine ecologist at Oregon State University's Marine Mammal Institute, this may actually be a very old behavior that was put on pause for several generations as the whale population diminished in the 20th century, thanks to humans. Mm. And then humans ah. wised up to what we were doing, whale conservation efforts took hold, and Pittman thinks the population numbers may now have recovered to the point that, number one, they can engage in pack hunting, uh -huh. and number two, they have to hunt larger prey in order to make sure that everyone gets fed. Ah. And one of the reasons he thinks this is that the orcas seem to have a certain amount of existing knowledge about blue whales. For example, they know that apparently the tongue is the tastiest part. <gasps> Pittman said, quote, killer whales are like humans in that they have their preferred cuts of meat. When preying on large whales, they almost always take the tongue first. And sometimes that is all they will feed on. Which is Dang. horrifying. <laughs> I seem to remember a story of not domesticated, but the Inuit had been working with hunting with them to mm. do their whale hunting. Right, right, and right. They would offer them the tongue as <gasps> kind of their treat, I guess. Yeah, give them the tongue and then they'll bring the whole whale the whole down thing for back. you. Yeah. Well, and meanwhile, off the coast of South Africa, two orca males nicknamed Port and Starboard have for several years been killing local sharks specifically to extract their livers and then abandoning the rest of the corpse. 
But Michael Weiss, a behavioral ecologist and research director at the Center for Whale Research in Washington state, says this has also been documented in orcas off the coast of Mexico. And he thinks it's extremely unlikely that the behavior was communicated that quickly over that distance. So as far as he's concerned, orcas have probably always preferred livers. And this is just the first time we've noticed. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of see how, sure, if a liver just tastes better, then different orcas in different parts of the world would come to that same independent conclusion. But there are other behaviors where there is absolutely no doubt that something is being communicated and taught because the behavior has no real advantage to survival. As an example, a specific population of orcas in the North Pacific has evolved to eat only salmon. They do not eat mammals like other orcas do. And yet, over the last 60 years, a particular game has spread among this population where they will seek out baby dolphins and lift them up to the surface and throw them back and forth to each other like a ball. Okay. (laughs) And despite having 78 recorded instances of orcas playing this game, there is not a single documented case of one of them ever eating the baby dolphin. So orcas definitely do communicate new ideas to each other and not necessarily for survival. But as far as whether they're communicating more than they used to, well, Josh McInnes thinks they are. He's a marine ecologist at the University of British Columbia, and he says that increased communication itself is probably a survival technique that's being spurred on by rapid changes in the orca's environment. In Antarctica, for example, there's a population of whales that has traditionally fed on Weddell seals with a specific technique where they will shove a giant wave up to the edge of an ice flow and basically wash the seal overboard into the water where they can then eat it. But as the ice melts due to climate change, they are being forced to rely more on leopard seals and crab eater seals. And so you can see how communicating those new hunting techniques would be an important survival trait and not just something they're doing for fun. At the same time, we can see things going in the other direction, too. Right now, the orca population off the coast of Washington is struggling to find enough food due to overfishing. And Michael Weiss says you can see their social bonds slipping where they're not communicating as much anymore because they don't have the luxury of hunting in larger groups. It's kind of every whale for Mm. itself. All of which is to say, our killer whale conservation efforts may have inadvertently created a monster, and there may come a time (laughs) where we say, actually, these guys are super dangerous and we should stop protecting them. Or as pointed out, we knew that already and got complacent. Yeah. It seems like they were at a healthy population, then they had to kind of lay low because Mm -hmm. there's someone else who's just about as violent as we are. It's like, Uh no, 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 there's enough of us now. We've recruited, we've grown. We can go ahead and take over Ukraine if we want, right? (laughs) That's where they're headed next, those killer whales. Mm. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. All right, from newatlas.com. We have just identified thousands of something called Fanzor DNA cutters, and these may outperform CRISPR. Oh. Yeah, we've talked a bit about CRISPR before, but... Yeah, they've been the name of the game for a long time. They have been, but ooh, there is some hot competition coming in from scientists from the McGovern Institute for Brain Research. They have now identified over 3,600 of what are called fanzors. These RNA-guided enzymes are able to be programmed to cut DNA at targeted sites, editing genes kind of like we've already heard about with CRISPR and the bacterial Cas9 enzyme. But just why this is a big deal is in the microbiology. So this is going to get a little technical, but stay with me here. Fanzors, which researchers have now found in a diverse set of species from fungi to mollusks, 
They stem from what are called eukaryote organisms. Cas9 is found in the simpler prokaryotic cell. So while these simpler cells, such as these that bacteria possess, are very removed from humans on the evolutionary tree, CRISPR has nonetheless been hugely effective in correcting genetic diseases and developing diagnostic systems. It's considered one of the greatest discoveries in modern medicine. But harnessing fanzores in a similar way has the potential to be even more impactful, just because these genetic scissors are already better aligned with our existing cellular makeup. Now, we know CRISPR is a well-known bacterial defense mechanism to protect against foreign elements. It helps to preserve the genetic code of the organism, but fanzores most likely evolved in eukaryotic cells through viral transmission or symbiotic bacteria, and they were conserved due to their usefulness. And due to the more complex nature of eukaryotic cell structure, the enzymes evolved distinct features, such as being able to enter cell nuclei to access DNA. So because of this, fanzores appear to be way more precise with their DNA cutting target sites. And as such, it basically opens up the whole eukaryotic world to these types of RNA-guided systems, which gives people a ton to work on. So it's new tech, but boy, if it can give me green hair permanently, I'm going to be thrilled, y'all. Yeah. Yeah, or we can finally create the Ubermensch. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I got to say, Fanzor is kind of, it's, it's a very comic book style name. It doesn't oh. feel... Yeah, didn't we? But there was a Svanthor down the street from yeah. us. Austin used to have a sci-fi, basically like a Ripley's Museum that huh. folded, but was on Congress Avenue, and it was SF... Svanthor. <laughs> yeah, it was hard to say, but the whole time that I read about Fanzor, I was like, oh yeah, this has some, some sci-fi all over it. But I mean, yeah. even the tag feels really sci-fi, right? Even more precise oh, DNA sure. editing. Ugh. And we have an abundant source from mollusks. Oh. Oh, yeah, we got plenty of those. We're growing oysters <laughs> to do all sorts of stuff for us. Like we are. Yeah. We're doing like it's like controlling the tides and protecting the coastlines from stuff. And also they're probably yeah. going to be a super good food in the future when we've killed all of the larger animals and grasslands. Oh, yeah, because the oceans are going to be super stable forever. Right. Well, that's <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, maybe by then we can use Fanzor to help us you know, breathe and extract oxygen from acidified oceans. The possibilities are yeah. limitless. At the very least, we could make us all think oysters are delicious, and that would be a big step. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, I already have that gene. Right, right, right. Or I can get the photosynthesis and not have to eat that I've yep. been trying to get for many, many, many years. Yep. There great. is promise. <laughs> mm-hmm. Next link. Next link. Okay, this comes from The Guardian. Should I worry about clicking joints? And stop cracking my knuckles? (gasps) (laughs) Please no. (laughs) We'll start with the story of Donald Unger. When he was a child, his mother and several aunts, and later his mother-in-law, told him that cracking his knuckles would lead to arthritis. But apparently, none of the men in his life did? I don't know. (laughs) The men were like, get the arthritis. It's good for you. (laughs) Get it. Cracking knuckles, that's what a man does. Uh Rather than stop, Unger embarked on his own experimental program. For 50 years, he cracked the knuckles in his left hand at least twice a day, leaving the right-hand knuckles to crack spontaneously or not at all. Wow. Yep. After 36,500 cracks (sighs) or so, the results were clear, at least for Unger, who had become a doctor and published his findings (sighs) in the Journal of Arthritis and Rheumatism. 
He concluded, there was no arthritis in either hand and no apparent differences between the two hands. Huh, what? And if you can applaud Unger for his half century of dedication. Yeah. Because your hands don't have arthritis. Right, 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 right. (laughs) You have to at least respect him for not calling it a cracking result. Now, that's Uh, not my joke. That came straight from the article. Oh, that's a very British pun, too. Like, it doesn't doesn't quite work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right, right. True, 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 true. So that's voluntary knuckle cracking. But what about all the other clicks and pops that Mm -hmm. seem to increase with age? Mm -hmm. Generally, it's actually decent news. Claire Spear, a physiotherapist and musculoskeletal champion. They put that in quotes Hmm. for a charity versus arthritis is the charity. That's what it's called. She's a champion for musculoskeletal causes, not just like (laughs) she has the best musculoskeletal system. (laughs) Exactly. She says lots of people have joints that click from time to time, and that's completely normal. I myself often notice a sense of relief when my back or shoulder Mm -hmm. clicks after stretching or a massage. So then what causes all of this noise in the first place? A 2015 study based on MRI scans suggested that the satisfying or disgusting pop of a knuckle crack seems to come from small bubbles appearing in the synovial fluid that surrounds and lubricates the joints. Mm -hmm. It's believed that their appearance is what makes the crack as they collapse harmlessly back into the fluid over the next 20 minutes or so. So some knuckles, it's theorized, are too loose or too tight to crack. They don't, they don't say which ones. None of the ones belonging to me, I assure you. I can crack <laughs> everything. The main concern about knuckle cracking, at least for the authors of one frequently cited paper from the 1990s, is that it leads to, quote, the rapid release of energy, much like the forces responsible for destruction of a hydraulic blade or ship propellers. What? Or what you call, you know, uh, when somebody's got too much bass in their car and you can hear it Ah. rattling itself apart, that's kind of what they were getting at. (laughs) Okay. And while the 1990 research concluded that there was no increased evidence of arthritis among knuckle crackers, knuckle crackers were, quote, more likely to have hand swelling and lower grip strength. Hmm. And the practice, therefore, resulted in functional hand impairment. As it goes in the world of scientific discoveries... The findings have been contradicted in a 2016 study that Mm -hmm. found no correlation between cracking (laughs) and weakening grip. And the older study might have indicated correlation more than causation, as cracking was also associated with smoking and drinking. Oh, (laughs) you know. (laughs) So when is it time to worry? I'm going to sound like an old man here, but if it hurts, swells, or if the clicking or crunching happens with every movement... It's time to maybe have that looked at by a Mm -hmm. physiotherapist to make sure the joint and its surrounding soft tissue are functioning properly. My D does that. It cracks all the time. Mm -hmm. It's fine. Yeah. I've been cracking my knuckles a hundred times a day since I was a kid. And I definitely, there have been times where I injured myself with the cracking. <laughs> okay. Like, I cracked my knuckle yes. too hard. They actually conclude with this, uh, as with everything, you can't overdo it. Mm-hmm. In 1999, the American Journal of Orthopedics published an article by Peter Chan, a hand surgeon. In it, he describes two patients who were so keen to hear the pop that they sprained their fingers doing it. Or, <laughs> yep. at least, or at least, that's the lie they were going with. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> I told I I can crack my neck, mm-hmm. but I've also had spine surgery. Mm-hmm. So I remember telling my doctor that I was like, oh, I crack my neck all the time. He's like, 
please, please stop doing yeah, that. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, he didn't say it'll cause arthritis, but definitely not in your neck. Yeah, there's a risk. You could sprain it. It's yeah, like running. Running is healthy, but if you run yourself to death, then it's not. Mm-hmm. And if you overdo right. anything, you can hurt yourself for sure. Right. Drink too much water. Yeah, yeah exactly. Which uh, mm-hmm. doesn't mean I'm going to stop. But, you know, <laughs> I try to do it more gently, I guess, now that I'm older. Yeah, but the long story short is... Yeah, it's, it's fine. fine. Yeah. yeah. Good. That was the news I wanted to hear. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. I've got one from Slate called How Hackers Swindled Vegas and Walked Away with One of the Biggest Ransom Payments in History. <gasps> oh. So the house did not win. Oh. No, not this time. <laughs> <laughs> so I think most of us are aware of ransomware, but it's basically a virus that doesn't necessarily steal your data. It just encrypts the whole thing and basically locks you out. So you can't access your own data until you pay a ransom to set it free. And for a while, hackers were doing this to random individuals. But in the mid-2010s, there was a notable shift where cybercriminals began targeting large organizations like hospitals, hotel chains, and pipeline companies because obviously they could afford to pay a much bigger ransom. You know, you don't kidnap the poor person's child. You go after the rich one. And when it comes to things like hospitals or accounting firms, it is the literal data that the companies need to keep doing business. But in other cases, simply shutting down the system so that no one can use it is worth paying a ransom for. That's what happened last month to both Caesars and MGM Resorts in Las Vegas. Both were successfully hacked within weeks of each other, and both own multiple casinos and hotels that were forced to check in guests manually and make payouts in cash while the situation was getting resolved. Now, interestingly, a reporter from the Financial Times was able to anonymously interview one of the hackers over Telegram. And the hacker reported (laughs) that ransomware was not actually their original plan. They had intended to hack the slot machines at MGM's casinos so that they could fix the results, then hire people to go to the casinos and win money at the hacked machines. But apparently the slot machine software was too difficult to crack. So they (laughs) fell back on using social hacking to break into a less well-guarded system. And, you know, this is how almost all hacking works. It's not that they defeated a difficult algorithm. They just tricked somebody into handing over their credentials. (laughs) Mm -hmm. In the Mm -hmm. case of MGM, they found an employee's information on LinkedIn, then called the MGM IT department pretending to be that employee and asking (laughs) to reset their password. Wow. Yeah, yesterday, my boss called me and said, hey, man, you didn't uh, change your bank account, did you? Uh-oh. No. He said, well, they sent me an email this morning, said my name, and said your name, said what you do, and wow. said that you had changed bank accounts and to <gasps> click on this link. To, and I said, no, dude, I'm going to tell you well in advance. Yeah, boy, that, it's a good thing they called you, though, because that wouldn't have been your fault at all. Yeah, mm-hmm. boss did the right thing. And also, what are they doing going after audio engineers? We don't have any money. Come right, on. Right, right. Like, <laughs> they should really be hitting big targets than us yeah like the I, it's hard to feel that bad about a casino to be honest but i mean humans are still the weaker link and it's scary to think about how now that we have ai that can effectively mm-hmm. mimic actual voices mm-hmm. that social engineering and phishing is just going to get even stronger really absolutely well and as for caesars we don't actually know how they got in 
because Caesar's oh. paid the ransom immediately and isn't talking. Oh. Uh-huh. Mm. Very mafia practice. Uh-huh. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> We're used to this. It's fine. Everything's yeah. fine. Nothing happened. And pretty much the only reason we know about the Caesar's attack at all is because they had to file a Form 8K with the Securities and Exchange Commission disclosing oh. the fact that the hackers had gained access to the driver's license and social security numbers of a couple of its customers. They made no mention of the ransom payment in the filing. But the anonymous hacker on Telegram said they had asked for $30 million and got $15 million. And I got to admit, this has made me rethink all the various data breaches that I've been notified about because I've always thought the purpose of those things was to steal my data. But now mm-hmm. I'm realizing like Home Depot and Sony and all the others were probably just being targeted for money and not admitting it, right? Yeah, yeah. it's having me rethink the job I chose. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Cyber criminal seems way better. (laughs) But MGM CEO Bill Hornbuckle said that his company did not pay the ransom and never even considered doing so. And the punishment for that choice was pretty steep because while they did apparently manage to clear out the hackers on their own and get their systems back online after about 10 days, the estimated losses from those 10 days added up to about $100 million. Oh. Yeah, but it's the principle. Right. Yeah. Well, and on the other hand, Hornbuckle said they're not actually going to have to pay most of that because these ransomware attacks have become so widespread and effective that many big companies now carry cybersecurity insurance, wow. which pays for the damages. Yep. And, you know, honestly, it's probably how everyone's going to have to do it in the future. Yeah. And theoretically, the ransomware attacks stop if they're no good anymore. But that just means they're going to trickle down again to smaller businesses and maybe even individuals at some point. I got little value over here. Don't come after me. Don't at me. Come on, guys. Yeah, and they just hacked 23andMe, was it? Yeah, I think uh, so. Which is a whole mm-hmm. separate, like, like I'm sure they just wanted the credit card data and or were ransoming them. But now if they've hacked your genetic data... Yeah, I mean, what, the, the possibilities are so dystopian. Yeah. There's already yeah. been a spotlight on specifically extracting Ashkenazi Jewish user data. So, Ooh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. God, okay. Yep, yep. I mean, you know, maybe they're scientists who couldn't get grant funding. So they're just... <laughs> <laughs> we just hold it to relevant data. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah, you want to do a legit genetic study, but no one's going to pay for that. So... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Let's clean up this episode by going to Germany, courtesy of The Guardian. <laughs> Rarely is clean up this episode by going to Germany. Germany. Well, well, you know, the times, they are a change in rapidly. They are. They and are. specifically, a city called Kiel. It is known as a zero waste city with a few caveats here. Right. But Some it, waste. <laughs> it, well, it needs to be said that they have pulled ahead of the crowd, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to things like recycling. The city has a ban on single use items. They have huh. plans for excess food to reduce waste and even innovative ideas for discarded human hair. They basically turn it into fabrics that filter oil from water. Hmm. Parents in the city who want to buy their children cloth diapers instead of disposable ones, they can apply for grants of up to 200 euro from the local authorities. And Hmm. at the city's biggest festival last year, the organizers managed to get rid of single-use cutlery and replaced it with something called a deposit system. Now, Germany does have a complicated relationship with waste. It has the status as a world leader in recycling, but... As one of Europe's biggest economies, it's also one of its dirtiest. For example, in 2021, Mm. 
the average German generated about 646 kilos of waste, whereas the average EU citizen only generated about 530 kilos. Dino Klosen, a manager at Kiel's waste management company ABK, says trends in the company's consumption can be seen in the bins. For example, paper recycling bins that would have once been full of newspapers, they're now bursting with cardboard from delivery packages. Quote, the weight of paper waste has dropped, but the volume keeps rising. So the city is trialing a pay-as-you-throw system where people are charged only for the rubbish they throw in the mixed waste bin, basically what goes to the landfill. Mm. The country's rules around recycling can be a bit much for tourists or immigrants and even some Germans themselves. But in the half a dozen flats in which the author has lived with Germans, none of the flatmates ever made a fuss about separating their trash. They put paper in the blue bin, food in the green, metal cans and plastic packaging in the yellow. They take electronic waste to special drop-off points. Mm. They have this really robust glass bottle recapturing system. So you pay about 8 to 15 cents more per drink, but you reclaim that money by bringing the empty bottle back to the local supermarket after which they're washed and reused. Yeah, I mean, they used to do that here yes. before they did plastic. That was you get your nickel for your Coke bottle. That was what they did. Absolutely. Why did we stop? Because plastic is cheaper. Oh, for heaven's <laughs> sake. In Germany, they've even got things called reverse vending machines in some shops and public places, which will automatically scan and sort bottles inserted into them and then dispense a voucher for the appropriate deposit. And if you don't want to go specifically to these machines or places, Germans have a practice of regularly leaving bottles in orderly piles by the bins to be picked up by Flaschensammler or bottle collectors. And mm -hmm. many of these collectors are unhoused or in precarious living situations. And so mm -hmm. claiming deposits on unwanted bottles go a long way to supplement lost wages or pensions. But for all their success in sorting trash, Germans do still struggle to recycle all of it. For example, the amount of plastic waste in Germany has risen up by 64% in the last two decades. Mm. But the amount recycled, uh, it's only crept up just a little bit. Meanwhile, mm. the amount burnt has risen nearly sevenfold. And yeah, environmental groups have raised fears that true recycling rate is lower than official figures suggest because they include items unsuitable for recycling and things like waste that gets shipped abroad. So yeah, to be the EU front runner in zero waste, it's something to be proud of, but there are still a lot of caveats. But there are things that we can do if we wanted. Yeah. I mean, I think the one thing this city shows is that it has to be required. The yeah. government has to say, you're going to have to do this. Get over it. And if everybody's doing it, you do get over it pretty yeah. quickly. It's yeah. just you don't want to be the only one doing the hard work when you watch your neighbors throwing their pizza boxes. In the, I mean, it's just. <laughs> yeah. you know, there's also a cultural difference, though, right. too. Right. Like we've got the freedom first and they have the just following orders. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Wow. Can you tell I uh, grew up around Jews and watch a lot of British television? All right. <laughs> uh, we'll probably edit that one out. Oh, I'm not editing anything out, especially <laughs> not after the 23andMe Ashkenazi Jew data. Like, come on, man. That's not cool. We're definitely going to be holding Germany to some account here. <laughs> well, you know, kudos to them. They hold themselves accountable at a rate. Oh, I absolutely. Think, oh, they yes. yes. 100%. Yeah, they teach it. They don't ignore it. That's mm -hmm. what I... Uh, really commend about the modern Germans today, mm -hmm. 100%. Yeah, they aren't trying to sweep it on the rug like we do here mm -hmm. in the U.S. Yeah. yeah. Well, someday when things get bad enough here, we'll also have a reason to be teaching our horrors. <laughs> 
And but we'll that's be recycling right. while we do it. Maybe that's what we that's need. Right. <laughs> the only that's way we right. get recycling is a civil war. That's okay. right. Offsetting <laughs> emissions and bad vibes. Okay. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include The Quest to Quantify Quantumness, Could This Lawsuit Expose Banksy's Identity, and Astronomers Link Starquakes to Mysterious Radio Signals from Space. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.